The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Marissa Ariola. Ms. Ariola is the president of Concertus, a wholly owned subsidiary of Nobilis Health, trading in the U.S. as HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Nobilis is a premier owner and operator of outpatient surgery centers and hospitals and a marketing organization that runs direct-to-consumer, minimally invasive surgical brands. Founded in 2007, Nobilis has seen strong sector growth in all facets of its business. Concertus, founded this year in 2016, broadens the ability of Nobilis to optimize the integration of all key players, patient, physician, payer, and facility. Marissa, welcome to the program. If you don't mind, give us some background on the Concertus business model. It's very unique. Sure thing. Concertus is a technology platform that transforms healthcare delivery. Specifically, Concertus negotiates with payers, including insurance companies and self-insured employers, to combine reimbursement for multiple providers and facilities in a single comprehensive bundle that covers all of the services involved in a patient's episode of care. As a result, patients no longer receive multiple bills from facilities and providers. The facility receives a single bundle of reimbursement and distributes it to all of the providers across the continuum of care. This unique fee methodology ensures physician alignment within the ASC or hospital and improves quality of care delivered to patients. Is this new proprietary technology that you're going to be offering to your providers and your patients? Tell us that's a very interesting question. This is a unique situation where the government is actually ahead of the private sector. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, administers the largest government pay program in the country, Medicare, has already started shifting towards bundled payment and has said that it will continue to shift over the next two years. Similarly, Becker's, which is a trade publication, indicates that 30 to 40 percent of all surgeries will shift to bundled payments over the next few years. What makes Concertus unique? In addition to being ahead of the game on the commercial side and being able to offer bundled payments, we provide three unique proprietary products. First, we are able to form and administer clinical integration networks. Clinical integration networks are the legal mechanism by which we operationalize bundled payments. Second, our proprietary IT system is able to offer population health management. What this means is that for a payer, an employer, or any specific patient demographic group, we can track trends such as 
comorbidities that go along with specific procedures, product standardization, and the efficacy of pain and other post-op meds. The third thing that Concertus offers that is unique in the marketplace is a care coordination model. From the moment patients are diagnosed as requiring a surgery, they will be assigned to a clinical representative who will walk them through everything from their pre-op procedures to travel to post-surgery, pain management, discharge orders, and anything else that they might need, either 30, 60, or 90 days post-surgery, depending on the episode. This provides patients with a concierge level of care in our unique boutique hospital facilities, and it also ensures the payers, be it insurance companies or self-insured employers, that patients will be compliant post-discharge and will get back to work and get back to health sooner. Tell us about population health management, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Through our unique population health management module, Concertus aggregates patient data culled from multiple platforms and analyzes it to manage specific episodes of care. This powerful data tool improves clinical and financial outcomes through implementation of clinical best practices. This allows us to improve clinical protocols over time to ensure quality, safety, and cost efficacy. The population health module dovetails with our patient coordinator tool, ensuring that Concertus not only tracks data, but can take action by engaging patients in their treatment and recovery plans, leading to enhanced patient and physician satisfaction, improved quality, and cost-effective healthcare services. Our software and hardware platforms combine the most technologically advanced third-party systems plus proprietary internally developed software to provide the most clinically significant improvements for patients while reducing expenses. You mentioned proprietary technology. You mentioned the federal government. Will these services be provided just to nobilis facilities, or is this a model for care across the board? As we roll out the system, it's initially being provided to nobilis facilities, but the ultimate goal is to provide it to facilities, patients, and physicians across the continuum of care outside of the nobilis system. We believe firmly in the efficacy of our IT product and are certain that it can provide very effective care coordination, population health management, and clinical integration network administration services to any provider who might need it. It seems that the system, as you've described it, is not only a company maker for Concertus, but for the parent company, Nobilis itself, especially if you're talking about something that could revolutionize payment for the healthcare sector. Absolutely, Ellis. We firmly believe that the Concertus model aligns payers, providers, and facilities in a much more dynamic way than we have seen in the past. For example, this is an opportunity to enhance relationships with commercial payers and to develop relationships directly with self-insured employers, which is something that that Nobilis has not had the ability to do in the past. We also believe that we will provide greater savings on bundled episodes of care than large acute care facilities. Why is this? That's because in our boutique hotel-like hospitals, most of the surgeries are elective. We do not have patients with multiple comorbidities there. We have much lower infection rates than large acute care facilities and can pass that savings on to patients, the self-insured employers, and the payers. 
more importantly, physicians are encouraged to cooperate with other physicians and with the facilities to provide enhanced care and to receive enhanced revenue incentives. For example, if physicians work with facilities to identify trends, such as which medicines are the most effective or which implants are the most effective, this model provides the ability to pass that savings on to the physicians so that they can receive enhanced revenue incentives for the time and effort they devote to providing better patient care. Most importantly, as we've emphasized before, this model provides better outcomes, concierge care at a value price, and access to quality facilities. Whether facilities utilizing this product are billis facilities or outside facilities, the population health management care coordination and clinical integration models will allow those facilities to improve their quality and safety metrics and provide better care to whomever their patient population is. As I mentioned in the introduction, Concertus is a brand new entity. Well, I'm pleased to announce that even though Concertus has only been in business for about three months, we've already established 16 bundled episodes of care along with the pricing and clinical protocols that accompany those bundles. And we're looking forward to scheduling our first surgery in the next few weeks. It seems as if the Concerta system will save everyone money, effectively bringing down the cost of health care. This allows the health care experience to transform from one which encourages excessive testing with facilities and physicians who are not aligned with each other to one which emphasizes clinical protocols, sharing of information, and improved quality and safety. This is not something that we have seen since the advent of the development of Medicare fee-for-service. And we're looking forward to shifting healthcare from a fee-for-service environment to a consumer-driven environment. Despite being filled with science and technology, healthcare, like any other business, is a business, and it should be driven by its clients, the patients, and not the payors. Will Concertus essentially be replacing the current fee-for-service system, Marissa? Ellis, so as we've discussed, we've developed 16 episodes of care. The intent of Concertus's bundled payment initiative is not to replace the current fee-for-service system, but to enhance it and provide an additional healthcare experience when it's clinically and financially appropriate. Fill us in on your background, Marissa. Sure, Ellis. So I'm a healthcare fraud and abuse attorney by training. I've been practicing law for about 20 years and have developed bundled payment and clinical integration networks across the country. Coming to Nobilis and working with Concertus was a unique opportunity to truly build and influence something over time. How did Nobilis find you? I was their outside counsel. I've been a longtime healthcare fraud and abuse advisor for them, and they, for a few years, kept asking me to come over as an attorney, but I really enjoyed my law practice. When they shifted the offer to be an operations position, this is something I never contemplated I'd ever have the opportunity to do, and I thought that it was time to take a risk and really build something. This comes from eliminating fraud in the system, correct? Yes. Yeah, so my background is healthcare regulatory and transactional work. Any healthcare experience is closely tied to healthcare fraud and abuse laws. So putting together a system like this, a clinically integrated network where you've got independent physicians who all align with a single network without violating fraud and abuse or antitrust laws takes a little bit of effort, and that's something that we've done before, and we were happy to overlay on the Nobilis Concertus system. Have you put together a system that will eliminate healthcare payment fraud? 
I sure hope so. You know, fraud and abuse laws are very complex and are constantly changing. So what we've put together is something that works within the current regulatory framework. We're very confident that as that framework shifts, we'll be able to adapt the model to accommodate whatever the then current rules are. Marissa, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. I look forward to visiting with you again in the future. Thanks for joining us today. Likewise, Ellis. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. I've been speaking with Marissa Ariola, president of Concertus, a whole owned subsidiary of Nobilis Health. Nobilis trades in the U.S. under the symbol HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with nutrition consultant Salma Klaus. Ms. Klaus came to the U.S. from Estonia in 2001. She graduated from the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA, summa cum laude, in psychology in 2012, and received her nutrition consultant certificate in 2016 from the Bauman College of Holistic Nutrition and Culinary Arts in Berkeley, California. After graduation, she founded Heal With Food, a nutrition consulting business in Marina Del Rey, California. She provides individual nutrition consultants face-to-face, over the phone, and via Skype. I interviewed Salma at the popular eatery Playa Provisions in Playa Del Rey, California. Salma, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. As people get older, they're starting to become more nutrition conscious only because we can't process what we used to. How should we begin this process, let's say in our 20s or 30s or 40s, so that we can live a healthy life? You can do lots of things for sure as a preventative measure and start eating healthy and making healthy lifestyle choices when you are young. It's actually great to start when you're young because you want to make it a lifestyle. Okay, so it's great to take preventive measures. And when we think about nutrition, we don't really know anything. We can guess, we can do some research on the internet, we can say, you know what, maybe I should eat more fruit when fruit actually, your body processes that and that's a lot of sugar right there. I've heard you say before, because we've chatted previous to this broadcast, that one size does not fit all when it comes to nutrition. Why is what's good for me may not be good for you? One size definitely doesn't fit all because we are all unique individuals with different biology needs and health struggles and our bodies also change with age and our needs constantly change as well. Where do you begin? If somebody comes to you and they come to you because they want to eat better and they want to be healthier, what's the starting point? I take time and get to know my clients first. I ask them many questions about their diet, about their lifestyle, stress levels, how do they sleep, what do they eat, how do they feel when they eat something and how do they digest food. So it's a pretty long process because I'm not going to be able to give advice asking just a couple of questions. So they have to fill out a three-day food journal, write down exactly what they eat, when they eat, and I analyze it. I do computer analysis, and I also look at their health history. It's quite a process at the beginning, but once I get to know them, I come up with individual programs specifically for this person. And it also depends on what the client wants to do. Many clients want to feel better, but they are not willing to make huge changes. So we start little by little. I always ask, what would you like to do? or what are you willing to do to change your diet or lifestyle? And it's a process, so we go step by step. 
when people seek out getting help, they usually don't feel well. And often they go to a doctor and you take medicine. When in actuality, food could be the medicine. You could be making the wrong move. Perhaps one should consult a nutritionist first if they have headaches, for instance, or their digestive system isn't functioning properly. It is what you eat, isn't it? For sure. I personally believe that food is medicine and that we can heal so many conditions with eating the right foods. And of course, there are some complicated conditions like clients who have cancers and they're not going to be healing the cancer with food, but they can definitely eat the right therapeutic foods and feel better and be stronger to fight the cancer. Well, we deal with cancer a lot on this program. We talk about it. And of course, uh, many people, as you know, are afflicted with it. Do you have clients from time to time that have cancer and want to be able to find something that helps them feel better? Yes, for sure. Personally, so far, I have had one client with colon cancer and eating the right food in therapeutic doses has made a huge difference. Let's talk about stress, something that everybody experiences. Most people have some form of stress. What portion of that stress is related to diet, or how can we minimize stress through proper diet? Stress is definitely huge in these days. It's called a silent killer because it contributes to every disease known. Many people don't know how to handle stress, and they don't even understand the importance of stress management. You can eat the best foods in the world and have the best diet, but if you don't know how to handle stress, it's still going to affect you tremendously. So stress can adversely affect anything you eat, so that's something you have to deal with no matter who your clients are. Absolutely. Most people are addicted to sugar in some form or another. They may not even realize it. Is that an American thing or is it constant around the world? I would say that sugar addiction is not only happening in the United States. I'm sure it happens everywhere. And many people don't even realize that they have sugar addiction. But the basic thing behind it is that when you eat sugar, you get lots of blood sugar imbalances. And that's when the addiction comes in. Well, let's talk more about that, Salma. Sugar addiction is a perpetual cycle. When you eat sugar, you like it, you start craving it, it has addictive properties. Your blood sugar levels spike. With that, dopamine is released in the brain, which is related to addictive behavior, and also lots of insulin is secreted to drop the blood sugar levels. After that, the blood sugar levels fall rapidly, and the body starts craving the lost sugar high. So you're continually wanting to have more sugar. Exactly. So you get addicted to it. You get sugar, your blood sugar levels go up, insulin is secreted, which tries to lower the sugar levels in your blood. And then once it's lowered, you start craving for it more. And then the cycle continues. There was a time in my life where I ate no sugar whatsoever. I was training very hard 10 hours a week for an entire year and I never touched sugar. Is that healthy? Absolutely. We can live without sugar. There are no essential carbohydrates that our body needs besides fiber which is carbohydrate but we don't really need simple or processed sugars we do need essential amino acids that we get from proteins and there are also essential fatty acids 
that we get from eating fats, but we can live very happily without sugar. And when we eat fats, there is no insulin needed to metabolize fat, but there is insulin needed to metabolize sugar. My personal trainer several years ago told me I should not have a lot of fruit. It converts to sugar, and I always thought fruit was healthy. But as part of my training, I was supposed to really scale back the fruit at least during the latter part of the day. Yes, eating fruit can be tricky. Overall, fruit is very healthy because it comes with fiber and lots of vitamins and minerals. It's like a package deal. But if you eat a lot of high sugar fruit, then yes, you can get too much sugar. It's always good to eat fruit with other foods like proteins and fats so that you don't get the sugar high. What is sugar detox? Is that something that everybody should focus on? I don't think everybody should focus on sugar detox because not everybody is addicted to sugar, but people who are addicted to sugar and have huge sugar cravings, they should definitely seriously think about it. How do we do it? There are two approaches. The first one is reducing your sugar intake and substituting it with healthier options. And the second approach is quitting cold turkey. What are good substitutes for sugar craving? There are some great substitutes for sugar cravings, like substituting with high fiber fruit is a good option. And also using dates because dates come with lots of fiber. Many people think that using agave is a great substitute, which is not the case because 90% of agave is pure fructose. Your liver has to process it and big percentage of it is going to be stored as fat. Uh, stevia is definitely a great option. Oh, really? Okay. Because I see a lot of press on stevia, but you're telling me that it is a good thing. It is. Definitely stay away from artificial sweeteners, other artificial sweeteners, but stevia is a natural herb, so I definitely recommend that to my clients. And also honey and maple syrup in very small amounts is good. But again, some people cannot handle even small amounts of honey or maple syrup because it creates the sugar cravings in them, so these are the people who should just quit cold turkey. And that's what you recommend? Yes, but many people cannot do that. You had some specialized training in Northern California. Let's talk about that. Yes, I had a specialized training. I studied nutrition in Berkeley at College of Holistic Nutrition and Culinary Arts. The founder of that college is Edward Bauman, and he came up with this eating for health model. It's not a diet. It's more like a roadmap to healthy eating. He thinks that people eat for four different reasons. They eat for pleasure, for energy, for recovery, or for health. So the first one is eating for pleasure, which is more like emotional eating or impulsive eating. Also, addictive eating would go under that. The second level is eating for energy. There are many people who are under stress, live in a rushed world, and they just eat for survival. They eat only because they have to or their blood sugar levels drop and they don't care about the quality. They just eat fast food or grab whatever is in front of them. And the third level of eating is eating for recovery. These are the people who notice unwanted results from emotional eating or eating for survival. And then they go on a diet because they don't like what they see. But diets usually are short-lived because no one can practice willpower forever. So the best level 
level of eating is eating for health. This is where healthy eating becomes a lifestyle and lifelong learning experience. Could a diet become a lifestyle? Yes. I don't like the word diet because it's usually associated with dieting and with people who try to deprive themselves. But when eating is a lifestyle experience, then people try to make it more positive and conscious experience and they establish loving relationship with food. That's when the quality of food becomes very important and people are usually more aware of their eating habits. If you have a loving relationship with food, don't you gravitate to food that's made lovingly, like restaurants where the food's prepared lovingly? I mean, you can almost tell when you go out to eat, if you're eating at a specific place, if love is put into the food, it's somehow going to taste better. And it, it starts with the management, with how it's prepared, where the food comes from. Doesn't that all go into the meal? And then you, as someone who enjoys eating in a passionate way that's healthy, is that not a perfect match? Absolutely, yes. You can taste the love that is put into the food. In actuality, a really healthy meal is like an antidepressant. I think people who eat for health make very conscious decisions about what they put into their bodies. They research about the restaurants, they research about the foods, what is good for them, and they just make conscious choices. And they do enjoy usually the great quality. The quality really matters to them. Now, I quit coffee for a couple of years, and it was no problem. I quit coffee, cold turkey, and all forms of caffeine, and I ultimately felt better. But one day, got around the smell of it, and I had a cup, and after two years, it was the greatest thing I'd ever had to drink in my life. I loved it. How healthy is a cup of coffee or two a day? And let's talk about caffeine. Should we live without it, or should we embrace it? This is, again, individual, because me personally, I love coffee. There is a lot of research showing that coffee can be very good for you. Coffee has lots of health benefits. But again, some people cannot even handle one cup of coffee. So it's individual. If you can handle one or two cups of coffee in the morning, it can make you alert and it can help you get more focused. It will give you that kickstart of the day. And that's why I use it. And that's why most people use it, I imagine. When it comes to coffee, I also always recommend to use organic coffee because coffee is loaded with pesticides if it's not organic. I have no idea. Even Starbucks or any of those? Exactly. At the end of the day, quality is the most important thing. So if you are going to drink coffee, buy organic. Buy organic with anything that goes in your mouth? Pretty much. And how much water should we be drinking every day? We should be drinking around 60 ounces of water a day because about 50 to 60% of our body consists of water. But at the end of the day, it's again individual. So just listen to your body and whenever you are thirsty, drink water and don't obsess about it. Just make sure that you are hydrated. Salma, thank you so much for joining us today in the program. I look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with nutrition consultant Salma Klaus. Contact Salma directly by emailing her at salma.klaus.nutrition at gmail.com. That's S-A-L-M-E dot K-L-A-U-S dot nutrition at gmail.com. And listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Join me now for a conversation with the Vice President of Corporate Development for Nobilis Health Corporation, Colin Azonian. Nobilis trades in the U.S. as HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. 
Nobilis is a recognized healthcare leader and marketing innovator that develops, owns, and partners with ambulatory surgery centers, hospitals, and physician practices to provide high-yield procedures in the rapidly expanding, minimally invasive elective surgery market. Mr. Azonian is responsible for the oversight of all mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures, and investor relations. Colin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For listeners old and new, catch us up on Nobilis. What have you been doing over the last year that is very, very exciting? Well, we've built a tremendous foundation over the last year or so, and it's primarily been focused on our ability to provide tremendous operational excellence to each one of our facilities, which are located in the Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix markets. We have been primarily focused on continuing our organic growth, which has just been tremendous, specifically driven through our ability to provide world-class marketing and sales efforts, which help our physicians and our physician partners do a tremendously high quality level of care within our facilities. So that really has been our core focus in continuing to grow organically and from an operational standpoint. In parallel, we continue to see tremendous opportunity in the merger and acquisition world. And we've ventured into the surgical hospital space, which provide us the ability to do much more complex surgical procedures that align nicely with what we're doing on the marketing side in terms of creating a multi-specialty branded portfolio. And closing those surgical hospitals last year have just added incredible opportunity in terms of how we've been able to grow. So growth has been the key element, that's for sure. Not every public or private company focuses on marketing to the degree that Nobilis does. Marketing is definitely related to your bottom line, is it not? Absolutely. It's a unique business model that truly none of our peers or public competitors out there not only have, but are able to replicate. This is something that's been built over the years. It's very sophisticated. There's a lot of proprietary technology and processes that go into executing you know, our marketing capabilities. And you see that at the bottom line. So essentially, in addition to growing your own business, you're growing those of surgeons and physicians that you're attracting to Nobilis, correct? That's correct. So we not only capture patients through our direct-to-consumer national ad campaigns, but we also work with independent physicians and their practices to help truly grow their business and manage it from that point forward. And you're doing that, I assume, with the surgical hospitals that you're acquiring as well. That's correct. So our surgical hospitals, in essence, give us the ability to, as I mentioned before, do those much more complex type surgeries. You have 72 hours of inpatient time, if you will. Those surgical hospitals are effectively big opportunities for us to provide a wonderful center of care for those patients that we do acquire through our marketing efforts. Tell us about the boutique surgical outpatient centers that you have based in Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix. Right. So each one of these centers truly is a luxurious environment. It's a world-class environment where I almost relate them to a small boutique hotel or country club. You know, some of them with valet parking, the cafeterias, the doctor's lounges, most importantly, the patient rooms, wood flooring throughout. I mean, these are high quality luxury spaces so that our patients come in the door and they truly feel like they're in a place where they're going to get excellent care and enjoy the environment that they're going to be in, albeit it's a short turnaround time, whether 24 hours in the uh, ASC space or up to 72 in the surgical hospitals. But it truly provides a unique and wonderful environment for these folks. And on the flip side, for the doctors, 
right? These surgeons who have been going to the hospitals and park in parking garages and constantly see a different quality of staff members that are working with them in these ORs, this provides them with a wonderful place to work. So we really put a lot of focus and effort in terms of managing these facilities. Okay, now that sounds expensive. Explain to our audience how that's simply not the case. It's not expensive. And it's great for the physicians, insurance companies, and patients as well. Absolutely. And and it comes down to size and your ability to manage them effectively. They're efficiently built so that they are not built with a lot of overhead and, and they're built to do one thing and that's surgery. So from the moment you walk in that door to the moment you leave, every single space that you're in and the clinical workflow that, that occurs in this facility is built on an efficiency model. So you may have nice luxury type of amenities in terms of actually the production, if you will, it's efficient and it's cost effective. So as you mentioned, the payers and the insurance companies love this model because you're providing a higher quality of care, a more efficient level of care, and you're doing it in a setting that reduces the overall cost of these individual procedures. I'm sure you have a great deal of positive word of mouth testimonials, but that itself is not really enough to grow a business. When most folks have an injury or pain that requires care and they don't have a solution in mind immediately, they may surf the internet willy-nilly attempting to find that solution, and therein the risk may be lurking and unreliable. As you've mentioned, your marketing campaign is fairly extensive and designed to capture these inquiries. It is a unique model in terms of the talent people and resources and how well they're trained and the backgrounds that these individuals have in terms of working with potential new patients. And that process starts from the very beginning. They may be, as you said, willy-nilly searching the internet or asking around their friends. But at that point, that's really where we capture these patients. Now, that's only the beginning, right? These patients then need to be educated. What really are they looking for? Is this something that one of the Nobilis brands can offer them? If it is something, let's tell them a little bit more about why it's going to be important to them. Let's share the testimonials that other patients have received. Let's introduce them to the physician network that we have under the Nobilis system. Let's really show them our facilities and quality of care. And all of a sudden, it becomes much more than just a, well, this is what these guys do. We've created an experience for this individual that nobody else can offer. And once they understand that experience and start to engage with it, we then help them put together their medical history, the profile that's required that typically is very hard for a patient to do. Once we package that all together for them, we review it internally and we present them if necessary, if they meet all the requirements as a surgical candidate to one of our surgeons at one of our facilities. And at that point, it truly is up to the surgeon to determine whether they are a candidate for surgery. However, it's, it's that process that level of education, and really cutting out all of that legwork that both the patient and the doctor have to do to get to the actual point of surgery. Nobilis handles all of that behind the scenes, and that's a big part of the process that you truly don't see on the front, but is definitely happening on the back end. We have listeners all over the U.S., and we've been discussing primarily the Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix area. I'm sure there are folks with conditions that would qualify for care at your facilities outside those cities, and they may be thinking of asking us, how about me? What can I do to acquire this kind of specialized treatment, comfort, and expediency, if you will? What would you say to them? That's a great question. And what we would tell you is there truly are two options. One, we have partnership facilities. We have 33 of them all over the country in a variety of different states. So we definitely have facilities that we have evaluated the quality of care that these guys provide and simply offer an additional treatment center for you. Now, we don't own or have equity in these facilities, but we've done all of the legwork to make sure that these facilities would be a facility that 
we would want with the Nobilis name and the Nobilis brand of procedures truly on the front door. So we do offer that. And we also do have patients who, given the level of quality of care and the top-notch level of care that we provide, they are willing to get on airplanes. We have a lot of customers who may be up in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the middle of December, right, who fly down to our Scottsdale facility and spend the week down there to get a procedure done. So it gives them a little vacation time and, and they get a little surgery along with it. Interestingly enough, we do have quite a bit of patients that are willing to get on airplanes and schedule these quick, easy-to-recover surgical procedures at our facilities in Texas and Arizona, especially uh, in the wintertime. What a concept, one I've never thought of. Let's talk about the revenue stream. You've been a profitable corporation. Let's talk about how Nobilis revenues may have grown during the last year. Absolutely. So straight up, yes, absolutely, we're still profitable and growing our profits. I think if we look at our average revenue per case and how that's gone up, I mean, that's a really good indicator of what Nobilis is trying to achieve, which is maintain a diversified portfolio of procedures, but continue to grow into spaces that drive that revenue up and continue to drive our margins up as well. Our complex spine procedures, the spine world is continues to be a big part of our business. The orthopedic brand, Onward Orthopedics, that we recently launched within the last year is an additional procedure type that we are including and in trying to grow, and we're seeing great success there. The bariatric world, as it relates to stomach procedures, is another one. So we're heavily focused on growing through optimization of the type of procedures that we're able to brand and provide in our facilities. I also would say, too, that a lot of our strategy and effort going forward, too, is the recent launch of Concertus, which is our bundled payment initiative. And that truly relates to the types of procedures that we're providing. So on the orthopedic side, if you look at total joints, those are procedures that we're going to continue to do, continue to market for, and continue to grow within our facility base. And you're going to start to see that those bundled payments or alternative payment models that we contract for will significantly be a contributing factor in continued growth and profitability. What do you see as a representative of Nobilis as a general reason for a listener to potentially consider the company as a possible investment opportunity? Straight off the bat, it's all about the business model. Like I said earlier, there is nobody who can do what we do or is doing what we're doing out there in an effective manner with the returns that they're getting. We are a unique model. We're disruptive. There's a heavy technology component to what we do. Tremendous amounts of IP that allow us to create a patient experience that no one else is able to replicate. And I think it's it's that business model that truly is your number one reason for investment. Two is our ability to execute in the fundamentals of this business. We now have built what I see is the foundation to grow into a national scaled business where we have a tremendous amount of facilities across the country and we're able to serve the entire U.S. base of patients who are looking for a better alternative than going to their local hospital. We provide a tremendous level and quality of care in that experience. And I think we're now at the point where you're going to see not just year over year growth, and we're going to continue to execute on that, but an appetite to truly serve the entire U.S. healthcare population. Of course, everything rides on the success and strength of your management team. Tell us about that team. So our management team has just done a phenomenal job and is quite impressive, specifically in their historical record in growing this company, leveraging opportunistic distressed assets or or properties. And through those acquisitions have shown that this really is an organic growth story where we truly have acquired not 
businesses who are making tons of money and doing a tremendously successful job, but we have acquired businesses that are struggling. And it's our business model that's come in and really turned these things around and shown consistent growth quarter after quarter. So the management team, first and foremost, needs to be commended for their ability to, one, provide organic growth through a unique business model, but two, being able to manage the operations efficiently and effectively in a way that generates a solid bottom line. Going forward, we have made some tremendous investments in talent and management. Myself personally, I've joined recently within about a year or so here, coming from McKesson, which is a large Fortune 10 organization now, I believe, participating and focusing primarily on our merger and acquisition strategy in addition to our investor relations. Rissa Areola is a recent hire of ours who came from Baker Donaldson and really is a top national law firm where her focus is to build out our Concertus business, which is focused on these bundle payments. And she has tremendous experience, credibility, and reputation in the space doing that. So we continue to invest in management and acquiring talent from the outside. And we just also hired a chief accounting officer as we look to optimize and clean up our internal controls and make sure that we are truly acting as a large public entity. Marcos Rodriguez uh, has got tremendous experience coming from top national audit firms. So we're truly seeing a significant growth in our ability to acquire talent and leverage the existing talent that's been here as well. Well, Colin, it's been a pleasure meeting you and I've enjoyed our time together. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate the time. I've been speaking with Colin Azonian, Vice President of Corporate Development for Nobilis Health Corporation. Nobilis trades in the U.S. under the symbol HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. And listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and the TuneIn Radio app. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all of our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. EllisMartinReport.com Once again, here's Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brand Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. What's going on now? Well, there's been preliminary results announced both in lung cancer and in colorectal cancer. And the colorectal cancer data in particular is very exciting and really sets the direction for us going forward in the near term. Let's review colorectal cancer. It's not specific to men or women. It's been tough to treat. Colorectal cancer is a very serious cancer. And like many other cancers, if it's detected early, when it's still dislocalized in the colorectal range, it's usually curable or at least treatable. And usually by surgery or a combination of surgery or radiation. And I mean, it's just imagine a tube that's your colon and they just top out a piece on either side of the tumor and sew the ends back together like you would your garden hose if it had a leak and that usually works but it's when it spreads beyond that and it usually goes to places like the liver first and sometimes into the lymph nodes that's when it transitions from being treatable to being deadly and it is deadly i mean the long-term survival rates for a colorectal cancer are 
still not very good. And most to all the patients, depending on where you are, when you're in that condition, will end up dying. I mean, there, there needs to be improvement. Now, there has been improvement in recent years. There's been some new drug combinations introduced, and I'll put a plug in for one of my colleague companies. Introduction of Avast and into the treatment of colorectal cancer has really helped out. But there's still a lot of room for improvement. And so what we've been focusing on is looking to see if there's signs that realize in our product actually works on the metastatic lesions because that's the ones that kill patients. And we've had two now randomized clinical studies, so studies where there's a control group that gets the standard of care versus the test group, which gets the standard of care plus real license, and that have indicated that we're actually seeing improved responses in the metastatic lesions that go to the liver. And uh, the first was in a head and neck study that we ran several years ago, and that was the first indication that we had in a randomized study that real license actually works really well in metastatic lesions. And we had a statistically significant outcome in reducing metastatic lesions primarily in the liver. We've seen the same thing in this clinical study with colorectal cancer. And what we spotted was that in patients that had metastatic liver lesions, that we had a statistically significant improvement in both the response rate and the degree of shrinkage. That's quite remarkable. And so what we're planning on doing is now moving ahead with a follow-on study to confirm that. And that takes us right up to the end of the product development cycle. So it's extremely positive for us and positive for the patients involved, of course. And hopefully it will be positive in the end for our shareholders. When might we see more news in this particular study? We're still waiting for patients to finish, which is a nice euphemism for more patients unfortunately dying so you can do the final statistics and that relates to the other very interesting thing that we saw in this study is that there was for the first time in a clinical study we actually saw gender differences in response rates the men we saw about a 10 percent increase in response rate which if you run a big enough study would give you statistics that would be manageable but the women just under tripled. So we took the response rate from you know the low 20s of percent, so partial responses are better, and took it up into the 60s. I've never seen that before, and particularly in colorectal cancer. Is there any data on what causes lung cancer that you're aware of? Well, most lung cancers are caused by either first-hand exposure to smoke, you smoking, or second-hand exposure to smoke you know, being around people that smoke. But there is a small percentage of patients who get lung cancer without either of those risk factors. And honestly, we really don't know why. The assumption is there's some sort of environmental trigger, and usually the patients have genetics that predispose them to having cancer anyway. And so it's probably a combination of those two, but nobody's really established it. I mean, there's some very specific environmental things that cause cancer, like exposure to asbestos can cause cancer and, and a few things like that, but it's mostly smoking. Is there any data on smoking cigarettes per se that would necessarily cause other kinds of cancer in the body? Smoking causes a distressingly large number of cancers in the body. It's probably the single biggest thing that as a society we could do would be to quit smoking to prevent cancer. Uh, The second would be diet and the third would be exercise. I mean, if everybody didn't smoke, ate a balanced diet, not just one thing or the other, and we're in good shape, we'd probably cut our cancer rates by at least half maybe two-thirds. That's a pretty big number. But smoking, and pretty much anywhere where the smoking affects you is where you get the cancer. So most oral cancers are caused by smoking. Most head and neck cancers are caused by smoking. Lung, of course. But then you start getting into places you don't normally think of, like you know bladder cancer. Most bladder cancers are probably due to smoking. But when you think about it, where is all those toxins getting excreted? They're coming out in your urine, and where does your urine get pooled? Well, it's in your bladder, so that's the case. So, And there's a few other kind of more minor cancers, but those are the major 
ones. But that's a big percentage of cancers. I mean, head and neck cancer is the third most common cancer. Lung cancer is arguably you know, the second. And we don't know about the risk factors and some other things. I mean, probably pancreatic cancers or some are induced by smoking, probably some colorectal cancers. All of a sudden, we're starting to talk about most of the cancers people know about, right? So it's, it's a really a serious thing. And certainly, you know, my family, I mean, both my mom and my uncle both died of directly of easily traceable to smoking-related cancers. It's just around and it's just there. Brad, thank you again for joining me today on the program. Oh, thank you very much, Ella. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Welcome to Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. There once was a French automobile company named Dirac. They set up an assembly and production facility in Italy, Naples, in 1906. For some reason, they decided to upgrade and they moved the plant to Milan shortly after. They had great plans. They were going to make 600 cars a year. That plan was interrupted by Italian tastes. Rough conditions of the roads back then, well, they weren't so good. And Dirac cars had a hard time dealing with it. They were just trying to be everywhere with established branches in Britain, Italy, and Spain. The British branch would become a majority stakeholder in Sunbeam Talbot Dirac. But it was sold to the Roots Group back in 1935. Hey, but let's get back to Italy. As things were falling apart there, and Dirac decided to sell off its Milan operations to a group of industrialists from Lombardy. The company name would change one year later to Anomania Lombardi Fabrica di Automobili, or to contract it, Alpha. Giuseppe Morosi was previously at Fiat. He was called upon to set up production of a 24-horsepower car, the first car to wear the Alpha badge. Now, you may think that 24 horsepower is not a lot, but the four-cylinder, four-liter engine was able to remarkably move this large five-seater up to 62 miles an hour. Being this was around 1910, all kinds of automotive projects were happening around the world, but Alpha was already building a reputation for brilliant performance, road-holding capabilities, and style. All this in what for the day was a sport touring car. And the Alpha would produce three models before the First World War. Alpha would stop production for a while to help the military effort, just as they reached the 200-car-a-year production goal they set. Alpha would make ammunition and airplane engines during the war. Sadly, right after the war, they went into liquidation, and the factory became part of a new company. A fellow by the name of Nicola Romeo was busy making railway engines in Serrano and airplanes in Naples. The factory would start making Alfa Romeo automobiles in 1919. In 1921, Alfa Romeo would make their first six-cylinder car with a 6.3-liter engine, but only 52 were made. The first strikingly new car was the Alfa Romeo RL, a six-cylinder which did well in racing. 2,600 were built between 1922 and 1926. In 1924, Alfa Romeo would make the RM, which was a four-cylinder version. Alfa Romeo was now beginning to get even more involved in competition, and Vittorio Llano was in charge of the racing effort. The Grand Prix P2, designed by Llano and Luigi Fusi, had such an impact, it started to spill into the production car design, causing a change in management. Morosi was gone. It was time for Alfa Romeo to shake up the world with a progressive design, and the 6C was just the ticket. 
The 6C1900 was pleasant enough to look at, but in 1934, when the 2300 arrived, it was a bold car with a sleek design, and you could get it with 68 horsepower all the way up to 95 horsepower. One look at the 6C, and you knew that the men and women of Alpha were some of the most skilled sports car builders in the world. This would be certified by a string of competition victories. The 8C would follow, with beautiful bodies by Castaga, Turing, and Zagato. In 1933, the company was nationalized and became part of the Institute for Industrial Reconstruction, or IRI. By now, production was approaching a little over 12,000 cars in the 30 years of production, but it was extremely specialized in the sports car segment. And then, the Second World War happened. To say it put a pause on the company would be an understatement. The company would emerge from the war and resume its traditional activity of winning races. But their eye was still on generating profitability with a sedan or saloon. And by 1950, the four-door 1900 model, with an 1884cc 90-horsepower engine, showed that Alfa Romeo could make a car that carried its fantastic D'Alessio styling over to a family car. This new era might be considered the start of the Horacio Sara Puliga era. He joined the design department of Alfa Romeo in 1938, working under Wilfredo Ricard. He was quite creative and he followed Ricard as the head of design in 1946. He oversaw the 158, the 159, Alfa Romeo 1900, Alfa Romeo Giulietta, Alfa Romeo Giulia, Alfa Romeo Montreal, and the Alfa Romeo Alfetta. He was central director in the 50s and finally general vice president in the late 60s, early 70s, before retiring due to brain cancer. The early 60s saw Alpha come to the United States. The first Giulietta was quite a success. 178,000 of them were made in 11 years, from 54 to 65. The Sprint version was a 2 plus 2 coupe with a Bertone design and mechanical heart and soul of an Alfa Romeo. New models arrived to continue the legacy they had built through the decades. In 1962, the Giulia, which may have been a plain Jane design in our eyes, but was obviously successful. It stayed in production in one form or another till 1978. Now, it's not to be confused with the Bertone Design Giulia Sprint GT, which was quite a looker and a performer, that came out in 1963, or with the GTA or the 2000 GTV of 73. In 1966, wearing a Pininfarina suit, the Duetto, named the Spider later on, was, is, a home-run classic for the ages. In 1968, the 1750, and in 72, the Alfetta, and the new Giulietta in 78. Alfa Romeo produced many different versions on a theme over these years, and the only one that doesn't look like it belongs in the family tree is the 72 Alfa Sud. Anyone else think it looked a little like a Corolla? It was a product of the reorganization of the company and designed to give the company an entrance into the lower end of the marketplace. Between the oil crisis, management problems, and union disputes, with the exception of the GTV, the Spider, and the Montreal, the 70s were tough times for Alfa Romeo. They did create a V8 engine for the Montreal to use in the Manufacturer's Championship from 68 to 72 and the Alfa 6. By 1983, they were talking and dancing with other manufacturers like Nissan or Abadi and Fiat to produce the platform that would serve Alfa, Fiat and Lancia. No surprise, the Italian government was heavily involved in operation. And by 1986, the company was sustaining heavy losses and was put up for sale. Fiat initially made a plan to acquire the company but withdrew when Ford put an offer to take over part of the company. Fiat came back with a plan that would include work guarantees that Ford was unwilling to match, and Fiat won. The new entity was a merger between Alfa Romeo and Lancia into Fiat. 
The models created in the 90s had some edgy styling, but underpinning spoke to the rationalizations that large committees use when they create cars. In 1995, the company left the United States, leaving the Model 164 as America's last memory of the make on our shores. Now the company part of FCA, Fiat Chrysler Automobile, it has returned with the 4C, and it will soon join with Mazda to bring back the Fiat 124 convertible. And there may possibly be a new Julia. One of the best-kept secrets in America, or at least seldom-mentioned factoid, is that the underpinnings of the Dodge Dart is simply a stretched-out Julietta. Is there another GTV or Spider or Zagato-inspired car that we could see from Alpha? Whew, it's a tough call. Fiat is struggling, and while corporate economies are doing okay, the buying public is shopping quite carefully these days. The price-value-performance equation has to be just right. Ask the Fiat 500. While Alfa Romeo's beautiful badge that incorporates the red cross associated with Milan and the crowned viper reference to the rulers of the city back in the 1300s, it was a beautiful design made in 1910 by a young man from the technical office named Romano Cataneo. It's art, worthy of great cars brought to market by the company. It may or may not be enough to survive in the new era of homogenized blended automakers, where market share and profitability are more valued than passion and design, there are some makers who can supersede these times and create masterful vehicles. We'll have to wait and see how Alpha expresses itself and fights to survive. For Car Kicks, I'm Bob Lang. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.